Uh, my name is Sister Princeton. Today is March 5th, 1992, and uh, I'm interviewing Bud Lewin for the Missouri Historical Society on the Oral History Project uh, concerning World War II. And uh, Mr. Lewin was vice president and director of sales and in charge of production scheduling for the Lewin Mathis Corporation. Company. Uh, company. And uh, thank you. And uh, approximately the day 1940 when we're going to yeah. um, uh, circle in on it. Right. All right, we've got the name of the company, and what was the address? It was Route 3, um, East St. Louis, Illinois. Actually, we were in the village of Monsanto. It's now called Sojay. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was your... Uh, that was the main copper refinery and copper tubing mill, where we made seamless copper tubing. We... Uh, originated over there just as a copper refinery of secondary scrap copper mm -hmm. and brass. And in 1936, we decided that it would be much more productive for us to make a finished product rather than just sell electrolytic pure copper cathodes to other copper companies. So we scouted around for a product to make and almost went into the wire business, copper wire business, but there was a growing demand suddenly for air conditioning and it required copper tubing. Nothing else would do. So after much study, we found that we had to go to Germany, which we hated to do at that time with all the uh, Hitler business going on, but there was no one else that made the equipment for making seamless copper tubing but the Germans. So we bought a machine, the machines over there, brought them in here, built a new building, and proceeded to make three-inch uh, copper tubing and smaller. That was diameter. From the day we started, the air conditioning and the plumbing business got so large that we were never able to keep up with the demand. Your office was in St. Louis? Our office was at on the corner of 12th and Shota where mm -hmm. we had bought the old failed bank building that was there. The plant office, of course, was in Sojay. Mm -hmm. So you were, business was, was good? Business was very good. In 1941, when I was sitting at my desk, when the girl brought in a telegram from Washington, from the War Production Board, mm -hmm. stop, which read, stop all civilian production immediately. Sell no copper. Keep everything in your plant the way it is. We will get back to you. And was this in the first part of it? This was the beginning. The beginning of 41? 41. I mean, like January and February, or? No, this was in January. I believe it was January. It might have been the first part of February. I'm not sure. So we shut down. And and did you know at that time what it was all about? Were oh, yes. people in St. We, Louis already? Oh, we were. Everybody was talking war, 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 war. Uh, the Japanese had hit. Uh, no, wait a minute. I'm sorry. It was 1942. The Japanese hadn't had, had already just been? hit Pearl Harbor. Oh, okay. So we stopped and let all the men out, some 1,200 men that we had at that time, and practically shut down, waiting for Washington to tell us what to do. They did this to most every industry. Uh, I do believe they allowed the automobile industry to make a small portion of automobiles. In 1940, was there any talk among people here in business? Yes. It, was, it was no surprise, believe me. Of course, Pearl Harbor was that it started that way, but we could feel that something was going to happen. Also, uh, we were advised by 
I think it was the governor of Missouri to start saving all types of scrap iron, scrap copper, newspapers, etc., that would be used in a war effort, which happened. We noticed that we kept on buying copper scrap because we knew we were going to need it. And suddenly there was a, a law passed that many things were subject to government inspection and would have to be scrapped. For example, and the thing that sticks out in my mind more than anything were the number of copper caskets and bronze caskets, brand new, that we melted for refining purposes. And tons upon tons, hundreds of tons, of brand new items of all kinds, including copper pipe, which we had made, came back from melting. Then you about got it back from, from uh, scrap dealers. From it, came scrap dealers. In, it came in from everywhere. In every form that you can imagine, brand new copper, brand new brass. Finally, so you had to rehire people oh yes, we had people. to, to we had people. what you Well, would we do. never shut the copper refinery completely down because that is a 30-day cycle and you cannot do it. It's, it's, if you do, you're going to ruin everything that is in 400 tanks, lead-lined tanks, where we plated the copper to make pure copper. So we got a, an order from Washington that everything would be under priority, all production, starting with A, B, C, D, and so forth. Well, copper tubing wasn't one of them. However, we were contacted by the Navy for one. I think they were the first ones that contacted us. Could we make tubing for ships, submarines, etc.? And of course, I answered, yes, we could, depending on the alloys. We had never made certain alloys such as copper and nickel that we knew that they use for high pressure steam lines. So they came back and said, well, we'll see that you know how. <laughs> they got us access to plants that were making the, these alloys. And we proceeded to put in furnace equipment. They gave us the priorities to get them. You couldn't buy anything without a priority, directly from the War Production Board in Washington. They gave us the priorities to buy the equipment and we started melting copper and nickel, which were the alloys. And so people had to go to other plants to learn how to do That's this right. and then come back. Everything was open. Anything that had been secret in your plant wasn't a secret anymore. And you, in order to really progress in this tremendous war effort, that we had to know how to do everything that pertained to our business. So the Navy came in and told us the names of the companies that they had awarded contracts to, to make submarines, to make landing barges, to make so many things for the Navy, which uses a lot of pipe. And they told us that the minute we started production, they would put a naval inspector permanently in our plant. We didn't like it, but we, did. we let them come in because usually it was somebody that was a haberdasher or something mm -hmm. <laughs> that they made into an inspector and didn't know anything about it. We found out later that our first uh, feelings were right. The, and this is the reason. The tubing for condensers on submarines, for example, was very, very heavy. The wall thickness of it was very heavy to withstand tremendous pressure. The inspector, who knew nothing about any kind of tubing, would say to us, throw that tube out, it's got a scratch on it. And we'd have to take that tube, remelt it through the whole cycle again. This happened until my patients were worn thin and I went to Washington to see an admiral. And Believe it or not, it was never straightened out. 
he still kept throwing them out. They wouldn't interfere with the inspectors. It was one of the wasting parts of uh, such a big war effort. And he, and he wasn't the kind where you would just... You couldn't do anything with it. If it had a scratch on it, he wasn't going to stamp it with his stamp, and that was all there was to it. Then, that was not near sufficient to keep our plant running. We had tremendous capacity. We had new equipment that we had already ordered to make more capacity. Only we had made the capacity to go from the four-inch maximum that we could make before to six-and-a-half-inch tubing because there was a big demand for it before the war started for cooling water for air conditioners. The equipment hadn't come in yet, but it was due to come at any moment in this country, that particular equipment. And who paid for it? We did. Okay, with no help from the government. I mean, you were changing everything for the war effort, right. and... We paid, we had to pay for everything. Plus the fact that Congress passed a law that you were only allowed to make a certain profit. It was called excess profits tax. That no matter how many millions of dollars we could possibly make, 90 to 95 percent of it was paid back in taxes, which we thought was very fair, mm -hmm. because it had one advantage. The new equipment that we bought could be taxed off very quickly, so that it ended up really costing us nothing. That was the only bonus we got out of it, and frankly, we were not interested in making money when the, we needed so many things for the war effort. We were in a in a period where we didn't know where to go to find out what else we could make that they would need. They did not need copper pipe, except a very small quantity of it for aircraft. And they hadn't targeted you for no. anything else? So I went to so, Washington. Excuse me, were you working on... We were working on only on the Navy. Okay, so that was like half or a fourth of your... Oh, no, it was only about 10 or 15 percent of our production. Okay. The rest of the plant was shut down, except the copper refinery never stopped. Because if we couldn't use the copper, they were going to ship it to somebody mm -hmm. who could. It never got to that. I went to Washington. I called and went to the Ordnance Department. I made a date. The Pentagon building was being built. It wasn't built yet. Finished. We're still in 1942? Yeah. And uh, I met with a general that was in charge of ordnance. And I asked him if he knew anything that we could make in tubular form for the Army. And he said, no, but we're having a show in Kansas City of every ordinance item we need. It'll be a huge show, Mr. Lewin, plan on spending a week. He says, we'll arrange for you to stay at the hotel, where to stay and so forth. But I advise you to go there. He didn't say, I order you, but it was the same thing the way you talk. So I went. It was about a month later. In the meantime, we just made tubing for the Navy. And the rest of the plant sat there. Finally, this, the day came along when this, this thing opened in the new municipal center in Kansas City. And I went there for a week. I, I saw whole shells, artillery shells. And I noticed on the, hey, I start looking at thousands of articles. Finally, I came to a, one stand that uh, General Motors had that showed large artillery shells, and I noticed that oh, on that interruption, we were you're in Kansas City. Yes. Okay. And I noticed that on these shells there was a brass band around them. Uh, I, I stopped and asked the um, ordinance man that was in charge of the booth, and he told me that those are known as rotating bands. And I said, I never heard of them. What is a rotating band? What does it do? He said, it engages, it's a soft metal that we press onto this shell and then machine it smooth, and it is a little bit larger, you'll notice, than the shell itself, 
and it is what engages the riflings in the barrel of large artillery pieces in the field. We go up to 8 inch. And I said, well, we're not interested in 8 inch. What size is this? I can see it was about 3 inches. He says, well, the only gun we're making is a uh, 75, French 75 field pieces that we're making thousands of them. So I said, well, we can make too big for that size. That's about three inches. And he said, well, let me give you a list of our suppliers of shells. And my suggestion would be that you call on them immediately because there's going to be a tremendous need for rotating bands. I said, you, you haven't got a rotating band I can take back to the plant with me. No, I can't, but I can give you the specifications. Well, it turns out that they were made out of an item called gilding metal, which we had never heard of. And the analysis was on there, the dimensions that it had to be, and so forth. And they were about three-quarters of an inch wide and three inches in diameter. And I didn't see anything else that we could possibly make in that whole exhibit. And I stayed there and saw every piece of ordnance that was there. So I had a list of the manufacturers, and I noticed the first one on the list was Old Motor Works in Lansing, Michigan, Division of General Motors, and the name of the purchasing agent. Also in Lansing, Michigan, was Motor Wheel Corporation and Kelsey Hayes Wheel Company that made wheels for General Motors cars. They were making a five-inch Navy shell, and Kelsey Hayes was making, uh, and that was made out of copper, not gilding metal, and Kelsey Hayes was making the French 75. So. I had the purchasing agent's names on the same list, which surprised me because the Army and Navy up to that point weren't talking to each other. But apparently somebody way high up had brought it to, got them together for the war effort. So I phoned them right from Kansas City, made a date for two days from then, came back to St. Louis, and I called our Cleveland office and had him put his car on the boat so we wouldn't use gasoline and meet me in Detroit uh, the following morning. And I took the train and met, he met me at the depot, Wabash Depot, and we went on up to, drove up to Lansing, Michigan. It's the biggest plant I ever saw in my life. Uh, I was used to a lot of big plants, but that Oldsmobile plant was huge. Well, I met the Mr. Dernier. I still remember his name. He was a wonderful guy. Very harried with me. He had so many phones ringing and everything else. And I told him what I was there for. Naturally and he said, looking for business. Right. Sure, we were shut down. And he said, we need millions of these things. And we can't get them. We're getting them from Anaconda Copper's American Brass Company. And they're making them by making a tube and turning them on a lathe, which means they get about 10 of them out in 30 or 45 minutes. He said, we need millions of them. Can you make them? I said, sure, we can make them. He says, you know the alloy? I said, that is easy. It's only, I read the specifications on the train going up there. I said, it's only 10% zinc in it. We can alloy it because our ma main business up until we went into the tube business, was making alloy ingots for brass foundries. Mm -hmm. And we knew exactly how to do it, and we had the furnace equipment for it. Huge furnaces. Well, he says, very well, Mr. Lewin, I don't know whether you can make them or not, but I'm setting aside an order for a million pieces for you. <laughs> I figured out a million pieces would take us quite a while. I said, Mr. Dernier, We've got to figure out how to cut these. All we've got is pipe. And to cut a piece of three-quarters inch long is, is very difficult. 
So I said, but let me go home. He says, well, I don't want you to go home until you go over to Motor Wheel and over to Kelsey Hayes, because we've been meeting for lunch every day. And I said, well, yes, I, I have dates with them to go over when we're through with you. He says, fine. So he says, I, here's the order. And he hands me an order for a million rotating bands of something we had never made. And then you have to go home and figure out. What, now, what was the problem? That it was so narrow before You have to cut it. It's, it's brass uh -huh. to cut this thing and cut it, plus the fact that the specification said it had to be cut to within plus or minus ten one-thousandths of an inch, like a piece of jewelry. So between the, when I left Mr. Dernier at noon, I called the plant and talked to our engineering department and told them what the problem was going to be. I had the order for a million bands with many more behind it if I wanted them. I hadn't seen the other two people then in Lansing, but how in the hell were we going to cut them? He says, no problem, bud. I says, no problem? No. He said, we have a big saw maker here that makes huge saw blades, 36 to 46 inches in diameter. He said, all we'll have to do is find out about how the teeth have to be made to hold to that specification. Did they have to be smoothed at all? No, these were, these were ugly looking things. I mean, they, they could have sharp oh, no, edges. They had, no, they couldn't. They had to have sharp edges. Yeah, okay. So, so after yeah. they were cut, there was nothing else you could No, we had to, to deburr them the inside. When you cut them, they get a burr inside and they can't have that. So we had to put every one of these bands over a deburring machine and that means by to hand. It, that's to smooth it? Yeah, to smooth it. It has to be absolutely perfect. It really looked like jewelry. Anyhow, I said, well, you got the problem. I'll be home tomorrow morning. So anyway, I went over to see the other two, and they welcomed me with open arms. In addition to a five-inch tube that they needed for to put on all of the, um, the, the ships, the Liberty ships, they had a five-inch shell that they fired uh, off of the Liberty ships. Every one of them had one, one in the front and one in the back. And they needed those. I said, I can't make them. Well, we have a three-inch gun. Was the Liberty ship the Merchant Marine? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so they trans that was a transport ship. Well, they, they, they start making one a day of those things okay. and more. That was to transport the Right, arms to transport and ammunition, arms, sailors, soldiers, everything airplane. So I, he said, we have a three-inch shell we're making, also for the Navy, for submarines. So I said, well, that we can walk away with. He said, and it's made out of pure copper. So I said, well, that's easy. That's right up our alley. Except we had to cut them. <laughs> Same thing, only it was a much wider band. It was an inch in width. So he said to me, I'm, I want to give you an order for a half a million. I said, I'll take it, providing you put one thing on there, as soon as possible. <laughs> no specific <coughs> delivery date. We have to saw these. We have, oh, you're not going to turn them on a lathe? I said, you'll never get your 500,000 bands if we turn them on a lathe. I knew that much. I'd had enough mechanical experience. We've got to build saws, automatic saws. So anyway. I went over from him, I went to, from uh, Motor Wheel Corporation, I went over to Kelsey Hayes Wheel and Mr. Brown, and he was so wonderful to me. He showed me where I could get saw blades immediately, that there was a place where they had been buying saw blades for cutting off the wheels, some, something on the wheels they made for General Motors that was in, um, in heavy steel. And I knew they'd walk away with, with brass or copper. So he gave me the name and the man's name and the telephone number and everything else, which I took back to St. Louis with me. And he gave me an order for half a million of the same shell. I went home, and everybody in the plant, including my uncle, who was then the president, who was that? Mr. Tanny Lewin, okay. my father had retired, who was the starter of the business and the chairman of the board. And 
I got hell for accepting the orders. Really? <laughs> how can you sell something we don't have, haven't made? We don't know how to make them. And I said, well, we're going to learn. I talked to the engineering department yesterday. Oh, he didn't know that. So anyway, the long and short of it was that we hired for the first time, we brought in some 60 women in the plant. We had 12 saws, maybe 15, made by a company here in town by the name of Kirkbride. And they made them working day and night, seven days a week. And believe it or not, in two and a half weeks, we were cutting rotating shell bands. You, you brought the women in, and they made the right. saws. They made, no, they didn't make the saws. They cut them. They cut them. They cut now, them. let me ask you this. You brought women in because? We thought they could do it, and men were hard to find. The men were going to the Army. Well, that's what we need what an additional I, what I want to know now and is is what you had to do in every aspect right. to get yourself going making these things right uh, we had to get the saws made we had to hire women and train them how to use them which really they did not have a, a very much to do except put them in mm -hmm. to fit them into the saw when they run out of length so your main reason for hiring the women was because the men were going sure. off to war. We knew that sooner or later we were going to be very low on manpower. Mm -hmm. And we start training women. They, we knew that they couldn't work on furnaces, melting copper and brass, which were huge. They were 500,000 pound capacity. And it's, it's heavy work and hard work. But we did use them on sawing and inspection. Which, and deburring of the rotating bands. We finally got to a position where we were making six million bands a month. We were the largest manufacturer of that item in the war. And this was, when you got to this amount, what year was In the meantime, our equipment to make larger sizes, which included the main powerful guns that they found that they needed, the Army needed, because their French 75 they scrapped. They would not pierce the German tank. It would just bounce off like a BB. So they went to a new shell, and they had me fly to Washington. The, uh, Army. the Army did. They went to a 90 millimeter armor-piercing shell, which the band was then over an inch wide instead of three-quarters of an inch, which held back the gases in the, in the explosion and forced that shell out at tremendous velocity. And it had a special steel, armor-piercing steel, on the end of it. Explain what we just did. Oh, the band. The band is the vehicle that engages the riflings in the barrel of a field piece, an artillery field piece, which are really rifles, large, huge rifles. Mm -hmm. And it spins the shell so that the shell is accurate and goes right where it's supposed to go. If it didn't have the band on it, it would just tumble right over itself, head over heels. Mm -hmm. As the shell leaves the rifle, the band flies off and is thrown away, or remelted, picked up and remelted. Now, um, we went into. We were the only people that could quickly make the 90 millimeter shell piercing, uh, armor piercing shell band that they needed. It was so desperately needed that we took them to Parks Airport, which was a mile from our plant and the army flew them to the shell makers that were making them. And it, as it turns out, motor wheel was making, would, has already been converted. Now, this took a month or two of time. You couldn't just do it overnight. Mm -hmm. You but mean the training it was, and the It was one of the going. turning points when the German tank could be knocked out. 
up to that point they couldn't knock them out at all the English didn't have a shell the French didn't have a shell and we finally came through with one can could you share this with the people that were working there I mean in a morale sense sure. what, what well you know we, you, you really didn't need it the morale was tremendous mm -hmm. just tremendous the managers of each department we and and I did too we we worked many many times 18 hours a day did you have seven days a week were your shifts constant three shifts a three day. shifts a day so you were always in production always in production never stopped seven days seven nights then I, of course I didn't touch much on the inspection which was a very critical point because if the shell band was off size it could throw the shell in the wrong it didn't go straight so we decided that it was such a ticklish item that we wanted to do it in a different building away from the plant so we bought a building at 1421 Spruce Street in St. Louis which was close to the bridge and we put a fleet of trucks on and we hauled every shell band we cut right from the saws over to this plant two-story plant in St. Louis where we hired women and a whole new crew to deburr the inside of the band and to pack them in huge wooden crates for the, the uh, people making the shells and ship direct from there. Why did you feel it was necessary? You needed more space? Or more space. Okay. Oh, it took a lot of space. That we hadn't realized was facing us. But it turned out beautifully. We, everything went smooth as it could. We later converted that plant after the war to a fitting to make them fittings for copper tubing in that plant under the supervision of Mr. Bramwell, who was an engineer. And that was our work. Doing a good job. Just trying to catch. Okay. I did go early in 1942 to Wright Field where the head of the aviation division was mm -hmm. and we did make a small copper tube for airplanes, some airplanes, but it, as the time passed they found that copper tube in an airplane that they were, the way they were using them would vibrate and break mm -hmm. so they went to stainless steel and that petered out in about 43 42 or 43 but other other than that we had a tremendous job when we got well i remember distinctly the battle battle of the bulge i got a call from general hardy of the ordnance department in washington and that was 44 44 and he said mr lewin no matter what you're doing in that plant put everything on the 90 millimeter. We've got to stop the German tanks at the bulge. And I said, what's the bulge? And he said, in the Ardennes, in Belgium. And we're going to fly them all the way, the shells over there by aircraft. We're all set. All we need is you to switch your saws, and, because he had been in the plant and seen, to make nothing but 90 millimeter. Now, was this, would you call this something that you couldn't say to anybody? Or oh, I couldn't talk this at all. Was, this was anybody a classified me, information. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the Navy was there with an inspector all the time. Of course, by that time, we had three Army inspectors there. But they were this, different. Was they, this, the Army inspectors were different? They were, they were usually an engineer. Was this unusual for a man? or somebody in the armed services to tell you this kind of thing? I mean... Um, well, I, I could have told him no. No, 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 that, that we're going to do stop them here or we have to do this or name specific They things. knew we'd do it. If, if When they told us the emergency of stopping the German tanks in the Arden Forest, but, I mean, which they told me. Yeah, yeah they was told that me. usual? Was and, that okay? Did oh, yeah. They knew that I would never talk. And... Uh, I never told anybody the plant, anybody. I mean, after all, with that many hundreds of people working, how yeah, did you Yeah, because there was always those posters that said, 
they were all over our plant. No, I never said a word. All I said is, if we we want to finish the 90 millimeter orders. I remember distinctly, and I want to do it right away. So we switched to that, and they flew the darn shells. They flew the bands out of our plant. They flew the shells out of the makers, the shell makers' plants, all the way to Belgium. It's unbelievable. Uh, the government had this I a, a training without within the industry. Did you ever hear of that uh, national government outline training within the industry, like Hadley, Rankin, Jefferson, uh, the, uh, College, which was the Y in those days in St. Louis, St. Louis University in Washington. Did you ever get anybody from any of those places, Booker T. Washington Tech, Technical School? Did any of you? Uh, uh, if we did, I didn't know it. You didn't know it. The, uh, the people that did the hiring of those, I, mm -hmm. I never messed with messed that at with all. That. Okay. <coughs> and as you lost men to the armed service, did, did you have we like a... We replaced them with women. Did you have like a plaque up that, or anything? when if somebody died oh yeah <laughs> believe me yeah the only possibility would have been a man that had only been there a month or two but I get the uh, it's the plant now is owned by Ciro Corporation C-E-R-R-O mm -hmm. and my nephew Hank Schweik is the president and I'm still on the mailing list of the newspaper that comes out every other month and I noticed that some of the men that have died recently, retirees, they, they published that, were with the, with the company 45 and 50 years, which would take them back to the war. Right. But, but as people got killed in the war, I mean, was, was that part of... We would publish it in the bulletin every, every time we published a bulletin, yes. Um. Hi. Uh, tell me about security at your plant. Oh, we had, we had three jeeps. First of all, we have... Excuse a, me, you a, did say that the Army inspector was more knowledgeable and easier oh, yes, to work with. They weren't much. Do you think that ran through... All through the whole naval process of anything we did, because we made a tremendous amount of tubing mm -hmm. in the, when they went after the big Liberty ship. We made a lot of tubing for the water piping. And, all that for them mm -hmm. and the Navy was still tough as they could be but the Army wasn't and they had no problems I mean it was because something had a spot on it they didn't throw it out right. um, okay security security we had three Jeeps seven days a week 24 hours a day that rode around the fence of the plant all the time we didn't have metal detectors such as you see in airports today, but they had the kind you hold in your hand, and every man went through a metal detector and whooping going in and out of that plant. And when this was the Army? Yeah. Both. Army and Navy work, yeah. But we never relaxed security. We couldn't afford to because at one point, uh, one bomb would have taken a half a million pound production furnace making the, the raw billets for making the tubes, we'd have been out of business. It would have taken months and months to get back into production. It's amazing that, was there any of that? In we had no sabotage of any kind. Did anybody that you remember in St. Louis? No, I don't remember any. I don't recall any offhand. We touched on the, uh, just when we saw each other the other day uh, and initiated this meeting, we touched on uh, the hiring of Negroes. And well, we've always been a fully integrated plant. I came to the business in 1926 when my father's health started to fail. And at that time, I would say we were maybe 60% black and 40% white. And... With equality in the job? Oh, 
You know, we, we never had any of that. Any kind of uh, racial thing in the plant at all, at any time. Do you suppose that was because your plant was in East St. Louis? No, well, it originally was in North St. Louis. And we moved over to the east side in 1925. Because though I haven't interviewed them yet, I have talked to uh, blacks today who said they worked in, in other areas and other segregated and segregated plants. So to hear you say that is... Um, oh, my father was very liberal. He, uh, he wouldn't hear of anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, any problem when the women came to work? Yeah, only sexual. <laughs> Normal. Harassment uh, type of thing? Well, or? married women making dates with single guys and meeting them out of the and then we'd lose a good employee because the husband would either kill him or beat him up so they couldn't work. That was about the end of it. Oh. I thought about that. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, were you involved at all with uh, groups of other men in St. Louis that we discussed what you were doing and or discuss regulations? No, we didn't because it was so secretive. Uh, and frankly, we didn't have the time. Time was such an important thing. Uh, it, it was such an important thing that I rented a suite of rooms at the Broadview Hotel in East St. Louis to get three and four hours sleep at a time when we could. And people really felt personally involved oh, in the Oh, we were. After all, in my family, I had Dick Lewin on a torpedo boat, Roddy in the Merchant Marine. Uh, I was too old, too many children and so forth. Uh, I tried to enlist in the Navy, and my father fixed it so that the uh, Admiral squashed it. Was he too important to make shells? At this time, uh, it was labor and management, did they sort of, how did, was there any problems? Uh, minor with us. However, uh, it sticks in my mind that John L. Lewis pulled all the coal miners out when we needed coal pretty badly, uh, which was the country really was very, very antagonistic towards labor on account of that. There were strikes. There were, there were strikes in, in plants, which the government had to take over and stop them right away. Are you talking about St. Louis or across, oh, across the country? Across the country. Um, did you ever hear a term, production soldier? It was just a term given to a worker, to, you know, like he was not, he was no. not a soldier on the front line, but he was a production soldier. Um, how about safety? Well, we've always been very safety conscious. In fact, I noticed on the bulletin that I got yesterday from Cyrocorp, uh, they still, there's a big speech in there about safety and they keep on safety. We had a remarkable uh, um, record of safety. Mm -hmm. Because there was a uh, um, St. Louis Safety Council. Yeah, we were a member. And, and Only it was the East St. Louis one. Uh-huh. Um, that I think Washington, you offered courses in safety management. Well, I'm sure we must have taken advantage of it. Mm -hmm. Because our plant manager was a Washington graduate. And uh, then the War Labor Board uh, offered, they had like a job stabilization plan. They yes, I remember reading about it. They offered incentives, I guess, if you didn't take if your employees didn't take vacations, is it? Vacation? I didn't take a vacation well, for you. four not years. Well, not you. I believe the workers <laughs> uh, and gave them income if they didn't. <coughs> was, is it, any of these incentives, do they sound familiar? I, I don't recall that. What am I missing? Nothing. All I can tell you is a relief when they wired us from Washington. Um, what was the name of that? M9C is now recalled. M9C was the order to stop civilian work. And when did they do that? The day the war ended. 
Boston BJ Day. They had slowed down production three months before, but they didn't stop it. They they made it clear they wanted equipment right ready to go again. Talk, can you talk to me a little bit about St. Louis at that time? St. Louis was a lovely city at that time. Uh, what can I tell you well, about it? It was in 1936, uh, we had moved out to Conway and Ballas, built a home out there. And it was country. I mean, it was real country. Everybody thought we were crazy to live that far out. Clayton was a little country town. Um, with its own little department store, Gutman's. <laughs> and uh, it, it was just a different world. The real thing at that time, and particularly during the war, was the, the difficulty of getting around on account of the gasoline coupons. I didn't have it. I had unlimited. Anybody that was in my capacity of running a, a munitions plant could get all the gasoline he wanted. Uh, not so with steak. During the war, <laughs> we couldn't get meat. It was very difficult. And sugar, there was plenty. I don't know why they had sugar coupons. It was silly. The stores were loaded with it. Um, the automobiles were worn out at the end of the war because they didn't make any for five years. And they started up again making practically the same car that they had made at the close, uh, at the beginning of the war. And uh, we were very glad to get them. Luckily, I had bought a brand new DeSoto convertible two months before the war started, and it took us through the war. Uh, as far as St. Louis was concerned, it was a wonderful place to live. Did you, were we filled, uh, you were of course living out, but if you were in the city going to work, the, did you, I mean, I understand that though the streets at night were filled with servicemen and uh, Union Station. Was oh, Union Station was, yes. Oh, Lord, it was still hard to get on a train mm -hmm. because before, you during the war, you had to have a priority to get a ticket. Did you do anything in your plan about blood drives? Yes, we always had them. Yeah, we we were one of the in. first I mean, corporations. Did the Red Cross come in and contact you, or did uh, they contact the personnel director? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, we were one of the first plants. I remember my father or my uncle saying, "I want a complete infirmary here." If anybody gets injured, I want to be able to take them, and I want a nurse here 24 hours a day. We had a doctor on our staff from St. Mary's Hospital in East St. Louis, and uh, he was available 24 hours a day. And that was way back. That was back in uh, the early 30s. If I ask you which was the best, the best of the war years, what would you say? I mean, that's 1945. Was the when best. it was over. Yes. It was a very, very grueling time. And worry. I mean, when you'd pick up the paper and you'd see that two big ships were sunk that, the night when you were sleeping. And by those damn submarines, it was just. It was, we should never, this country should never allow our munitions to fall to the to the level that they were at the start of World War II, especially after just a 12, 14 years before it had been, there had been World War One, And we let things just drop to nothing. All, anything in, in the uh, armed services, there was nothing. In looking at a chronology of the war, I was absolutely flabbergasted that Guadalcanal began in like August of 1942. Yeah. If somebody would have asked me, I would have said 43, because that was tremendous. Oh, no. That was tremendous to be able to come back or begin to make a dent that soon. So the 
this country must have just all I can tell you is if you had witnessed what I witnessed and I had permission and I did go through a lot of munitions plants shipyards uh, I remember distinctly the Brooklyn Navy Yard and uh, we, the places we were selling mm -hmm. tubing uh, for use if you could see the feeling of everybody working and how fast they worked and they wanted to get the job done I wonder if the feeling would be there today with so many people that they don't seem to care about this country and they're letting it and all this crime and they're just letting it go to pot it's the way it looks to an old man like me into a middle-aged woman like me. Uh, what about... You never heard of drugs. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever mentioned a drug. Mm -hmm. Liquor, yes. Mention, tell me some other um, companies in St. Louis who did tremendous jobs. Well, I, every, every manufacturing plant did something. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, they had to or they couldn't stay in business. Uh, I, I find it, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, uh, American Stove did a big job. McQuay Norris did a big job. Um, let's see, that was, uh, Mallinckrodt did a big job. Monsanto did some, but they were not very, well, they were big at that time, I guess. Nothing like they are today. Um, Granite City Steel certainly did. Um, St. Louis Car Company certainly did. Meissner. Yes, Mr. Meissner. They were making, I think, tank parts. Uh, there was a lot of things made in St. Louis. Um, Scullins did a lot of work. And I'm sure there's a lot of companies I'm not thinking of back then. A lot of them aren't in business today. Well, can you think of anything that, uh, well, how did you feel when they dropped the atomic bomb? Happy. We knew it was being built. We, we knew that was what was going on at Washington U. And, uh, The cyclotron. Yeah, the cyclotron and all. And uh, we were sort of scared to drive by it because mm -hmm. we didn't understand yeah. it. <laughs> You know, uh, I mentioned that to someone as a child. I some yeah. I, somebody had told me. We used to speed up a little when yeah. we passed there. But did um, Roosevelt's death affect? Um, oh, that's. People? I know. I went to church that night. He's a wonderful man. Did Poor you, guy. You could just see him deteriorating. Did Did you talk to people, or not you, but somebody in the plant talk to people on the loudspeaker when these things happened? Did you, would you kind of, I understand. You couldn't in a plant like ours. The noise level is tremendous. You, you have to practically scream to get anybody to hear you when you walk through a tubing mill because the tubing falling and the machi heavy machinery drawing it and everything makes a tremendous amount of noise. Well, Glad, I appreciate this. I, I'm glad I ran into you. I'm glad we did it. And uh, if you have any other things you want to add. Um, I just hope we get a decent president this time. My hopes go along with yours. One that will worry uh, about the American people and for some, and in some way stop this crime and drugs. It's just just horrible. So you you would be very fearful. Uh, would you be very fearful if you had to do it over? Had to do this today. Well, we it would get done, but uh, it would be much more difficult. I mean, when you stop to think that a person my age is afraid to go into certain neighborhoods to certain restaurants or movies with, without three or four men along. What impact did this war have on you? How did it change it, you? I think it made me very tolerant of a lot of things. That I, you know, as a young man, I probably wasn't. Although I wasn't that young when, when the war started. Uh, I'll be 84 in October, and I don't know how old I was. I must have been in my late 30s. 
I want to look like you when I'm 84. <laughs> it's golf. Just keep playing golf. <laughs> I will, I will. <laughs> uh, My father was a golf nut, and he lived at 87, and if it hadn't been for cancer, he'd still be here, I guess. My mother was 94 when she died. So My sister Dorothy is Schweik is 85. Um, so she, I, I called Dorothy the other day. Did you? I, well, I, I take her to lunch. Yeah, I take her to lunch all the I time. I thought uh, I wanted to see who was the president of the Jewish Council in, during the war years and what they might have been doing, and she was. <laughs> and yeah, she I was surrounded on this list by a lot of dead women. <laughs> oh, I know. She was the only one. I know. Um, back to how it changed you, besides being more tolerant, is there? Well, it changed a lot of things. For example, if from a business standpoint, we'll, we'll start there. If we were, when the war ended, we were able to make tubing up to eight inch. We had never in our wildest dream ever thought we'd be able to make tube that big or that there'd be a demand for it. Well, there was. The reason there was is when they built a large building after the war, they air conditioned it automatically. That meant that they had to cool the Freon in the air conditioning system through big pipe. We were the only one in the country making eight-inch pipe. I remember before I retired the first time, which was in 1957 when we sold our company to Sierra de Pasco, uh, I got the job for the Bedford-Stuyvesant housing project in New York City for, at that time, was a million pounds of pipe. That was a tremendous amount in those years. And it was because we had eight-inch pipe. So cool. you learned a lot. We learned a lot, tremendous amount. We learned how to, how to make alloys of pipe. So had the war not come along, these things would have happened, but they would have happened. That's right. Much Very slower, slower much slower. The price, Germans, you have to, to understand, that the German mentality is mechanical. They are always ahead. They are right now. I was surprised when you said that you bought the... We had to. We had no I choice. know, but I was surprised that they would have sold it to they you. They sold it to us. They thought we were making copper plumbing tubing. We could only make three and a half, three But then they, realized they must have understood what the... What they, the were, they were only interested in their own self-interest, selling something and getting dollars. Dollars, that's right. They need dollars just like they do. Okay, so now, so now besides right. the... Uh, Heidi, go, go sit. We're, we're talking to the dog. No. Um, Thank you. <laughs> what, what else did it change besides the business? I think the black people gained a lot by the war. I really do. It didn't particularly in our plant, but uh, in a lot of plants where they got, had access to employment that they hadn't had before. The same goes for Jews. I mean, there was a there were companies in this city that wouldn't hire a Jew. Ralston Perino was one. The old man Dan Forth was very anti-Semitic. There wasn't one. Jewish person in Ralston Perino. Monsanto at that time, even though later tracing showed that Queenie was Jewish, had Jewish blood in him, they wouldn't hire a Jew at that time. And there were others, but not many. I, I can truthfully say there were not many. But why did the war change that? In what way? They, they had no choice. Meaning they had to they take needed, anybody. They needed people like women. That's like right. They needed, needed bodies. And some people finally had to take blacks. They finally had to take Jews. Exactly. Pure and simple right. as that. There was a lot of uh, feeling before the war. Well, it was really before World War One about it. Uh, Irish. A lot of people wouldn't hire Irish. Mm -hmm. Italian. Uh, I think. We learned a lot about processing food during the war, too, differently. Because um, it built up the packing industry, the clothing industry, my God, and the equipment for, to, for the Army uniforms and everything. But for you personally, <coughs> for you personally, besides 
be more tolerant? I swore I'd never step a foot in Germany. That was the only thing. The reason I... Uh, have, you, <coughs> have you always been a can-do person? Yeah. Okay, because you, you made a comment back when I said what would it be like to uh, to try and do this today. Oh, we and you said, well, we would have done it. It's, oh, it's sure. right, that With that remark, uh, that's why it made me ask you. How, how I'll take you in the basement. That'll tell you. <laughs> well, explain why oh. on the tape. <laughs> no. <laughs> but but uh, creates things and he has some things in the basement to show me. <laughs> right. I want to thank you very much. Oh, it was a pleasure. I enjoyed reviewing it again. And for all the things that you did during the war to help. Thank you. Anything to save this country? Anything to save this country? Believe me.